Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, there's a fair chance some of you may have noticed the world's 50 best restaurants awards, widely considered the Oscars of gastronomy, went this year to Copenhagen's three Michelin star Noma. What you probably didn't know is that its chief operating officer is an Australian called Ben Liebman. And you probably didn't know that Ben's a media guy who brought the acclaimed Noma pop-up restaurant to Australia, Sydney's Barangaroo, actually, six years ago with Tourism Australia to much acclaim and fanfare. You also probably wouldn't know that Ben was handpicked by Elizabeth Murdoch a decade ago to create Shine 360, the commercial arm of her production business, to run rights management, sponsorship, brand integration and consumer products. In the case of Shine's MasterChef, it ended up being a $700 million beast from sponsorship deals, consumer products such as pots and pans, book sales, events and so on. Ben eventually found himself at Noma working with the real MasterChef and founder Renee Redzepi, who didn't want to expand with licensed restaurants or Gordon Ramsay-style entertainment shows, but they have created a pretty interesting media unit. One initiative being a documentary series picked up by one of the big global streaming platforms, which Ben won't tell me yet. It's a fascinating story and there's much more to tell. We may even have it confirmed that Ben Liebman might be returning to Australia permanently. But that is getting ahead of myself. Let's hear this frankly cracking tale and welcome Ben Liebman. Before we get into the sort of juicy backstory, Ben, what does an Australian TV production bloke do at the world's best restaurant? And by the way, what's your dietary weight management system? I'm busting to know that one too. But welcome, Ben. Great to have you from Copenhagen. Thank you, mate. Greetings from uh, sunny Copenhagen, where at this time of year, it is dark at 3.30 in the afternoon. So, uh, you know. But it's, I think it's 8.30 there, so you've got a few hours ahead of you, right? It's in that permanent state of grey. No, mate, thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you again. What does a chief operating officer do? That permanent question of what my parents asked me is, what exactly do you do? Yes, right. Mate, look, to be honest with you, somebody said to me recently, chief operating officer is probably a misnomer. It's chief marketing officer, chief strategy officer, chief growth and revenue Paul, you've heard me say it. I take no credit for the extraordinary creativity that is taking place about 10 metres from my left and on the other side of that door where there are 50 to 60 chefs, waiters from around the world creating what 75 guests experience five nights a week here at Noma. My role has been the everything else, to create a platform for them from a business standpoint, that allows them to succeed and to continue pushing those boundaries of creativity that Noma is so known for. You know, building a business outside the four walls of a restaurant, which to be honest is very similar to what I used to say when people asked, what do you do at Shine or what do you do at Fremantle, which was trying to build a business outside the four walls of the television, you know, taking an idea and turning it into a brand or turning it into a business. So, mate, that's the day job. As, as I said to you a second ago, these are not cook's hands. These are typing hands. 
So I am yes, great. placed behind a computer and a mobile phone in my ear. Well, we're going to get to how you got there at Tonoma in Copenhagen. That's coming. But let's just get to the now. I mean, it was two months ago, three months ago, Noma hit the number one spot. It's been in the top, what, five for a few years, right? It's because it moves up and down. But this year, number one, right? Number one, again, actually for the last time, given rule changes that the 50 Best introduced about two years ago. But it's the fifth time that Noma has taken the top spot. Previously, I was thinking about it this morning as I was walking in. The last time was actually when we were in Sydney doing the Noma Australia pop-up and then have reclaimed it again now for, as I say, the fifth and final time. What's the rule changes is only so many geniuses can get. Is that what happens? It was a rule change they introduced about two years ago, which, you know, I think was with a view to continue to evolve the awards to continue to breathe fresh air and new blood into the system that once you had won, you were no longer eligible to win again. Right. Which, you know, it is what it is. I think our kind of philosophy is to continue to push and continue to challenge ourselves and with that, try to lift both our team and our industry. But them's the rules, Paul. And uh, so we'll bow out at the number one spot. Well, it's a slightly good thing to bow out on. Listen, let's get to how you got to Noma and what happened with Renee that ended up having you in Copenhagen as the COO and the marketing guy and the brand guy and the growth guy and all those things you talked about. How did that happen? And then we'll get to sort of what's happened since you've joined. But the connection, where did it happen? It was a sliding doors moment, to be completely honest. And that is probably for another even longer conversation. But Renee and I connected over social media in the first instance back in 2012, maybe 2013. I was very much entrenched at Shine at that point, based in London. In London, right, yep. And Renee and I connected and six months later came to Copenhagen with my family, told him I was coming to town and he said, you know, come and say hello and met him one day in the test kitchen above the old Noma. And, you know, we talked for about 10, 15 minutes about the intersection of our two worlds where food was meeting media and, you know, talked about everything from formats of the past and where we saw the trends were going. And after 15 to 20 minutes, you know, he stopped and he said, so what did you come to sell me? And, Mm. And I said nothing. And that was the truth. And I think it was that first realization of, oh, everybody who comes through these doors is usually trying to pitch him something, try to sell him something. And I had not come with any agenda. I had literally just come as a fan of the restaurant, as a student of this kind of intersection of the creative and commercial worlds and with a view to connect. And I think the purity behind it is what kind of created the foundation that led me here today. So you're at Shine 360 then though, Ben? And I'm at Shine 360, Paul. And at that point in time, building both entertainment brands and formats like the MasterChefs of the world through to scripted and factual concepts or projects like the Broad Churches and the Lily Hammers, all part of Shine's global catalogue. Was MasterChef the juggernaut then? I can't remember. It was too long ago. No, it was, mate. I think at that point in time, it was being produced in 45 or 50 countries around the world. It was being broadcast in over 100. Off screen, we had built it into, you know, a juggernaut with publishing both books and magazines and live events, 
digital products and platforms that were both an extension of the television series and a kind of extension of the brand and obviously a very significant brand partnerships and sponsorships program. And I was very content doing that. But but that was, the, at least for me, my first professional connection to the food world and my first, I guess, experience in seeing how powerful food was. You know, there'd been all of those reports that said that Gen X and Gen Z were going to use what they ate and where they ate it and chefs as important and defining a kind of characteristics of who they were as old folks like you and I would use the sneakers we wore or the music we listened to. I knew at that point that food was becoming social cultural currency. But, you know, Renee and I connected and we then stayed in touch over a two and a half year period such that when I was moving back to Sydney, I was leaving Shine. Noma was at that point in Tokyo doing the first of what would be its kind of pop-ups. And we were sitting at the bar after service one night and he asked, maybe we should do Australia next. And do you think it's possible? And famous last words, you know, thinking it was just going to be like a television production or a live event. I said, of course it's possible. And that was my beginning of my time working with him. I was off the plane in Sydney, I think the 1st of February 2015. And a week later, I was traveling to Margaret River to see possible locations for what would eventually be Barangaroo in Sydney. And that went off? It went off. It was, yeah, Mm. that is an understatement. I remember we went on sale at 9 a.m., I texted the team. They were clearly managing sales from Copenhagen. The restaurant hadn't moved out at that point, but they went on sale as I was walking into a meeting, at, funnily enough, at Foxtel. And I said to them, look, I'm going into a meeting. Call me if there's a problem. And three minutes later, I got a text that said, we've sold out. And we'd sold five and a half thousand tickets in three minutes. And that was that moment, Paul, of realizing not only the power of Noma, but really the power of food. Ever since then, you know, I've increasingly seen that it is currency, whether the consumers in terms of what they buy and the restaurants they dine out to and the TV shows that they consume, or from the brand side, viewing food as the vehicle with which to reach their audience and their customers. What was the cost, Ben, by the way? What did it cost, a ticket? $450 all in. But that was the start then of the return to the Northern Hemisphere. Tell us what happened post that completely crazy success that was Barangaroo and Noma pop-ups. We opened on Australia Day 2016. We closed at the end of March. And I think we as a family had just unpacked our shipping container of everything we'd brought back to London when Renee said, how do you think about coming to Copenhagen? And I rang my very patient and understanding wife and said, how about we repack that shipping container? Um, (laughs) And I was the bobblehead souvenir that they took back from Australia (laughs) at the end of the pop-up. And the invitation, the offer was to help them build a business outside of the four walls of what was at the time a single restaurant and to do it in a way that hadn't been done before. Right. And he didn't want, Renee didn't want to do what many of the other high profile global chefs at that time were doing, right? He didn't. And that's not to say that what they do is right or wrong or vice versa for us. It was just not what he wanted to do. And I think, you know, one of the key principles of Noma's success has been this idea of creativity with constraints 
you know, that when you put constraints upon creativity, it forces it to break through. And his challenge to me was how do we build a business that doesn't look like the traditional restaurant or hospitality group? And again, it wasn't a judgment call that those that had come before had done something wrong. It was more just a realization that his purpose, his values, and that of the Noma in inverted commas brand stood for something completely different. And that was an extraordinary challenge for me. I think if he had said, just do what everybody else had done before, I probably wouldn't have said yes. You know. So what were the kernels of that sort of lateral creativity that you sort of ended up heading towards? What did you start thinking and brewing up? I mean, I think not to, to kind of take the romanticism out of it, Paul, but I think that's possibly where I took my experience in media and prior to that in music, but really just in marketing to say, you know, what are the values of this brand? I mean, I often say that, you know, strip away the romanticism of it. This is an intellectual property business in the same way that film and television is, in the same way that music is. And maybe that's what's allowed me to navigate those industries. But that if you strip it down and say, okay, it is a piece of intellectual property and what does that IP stand for and what is its purpose and how do we position it and where is its audience, then you can start approaching it in perhaps a more strategic fashion. You know, his challenge to me and my colleagues was, I don't want to scale the dining room. I don't want more guests. That would have been the obvious thing. If anything, I want to, over time, reduce the number of guests that we have because that will allow us to focus more on the creative output of the kitchen, of the R&D team and the test kitchen. Just on that, Ben, there was huge waiting lists, right? The restaurant was just, you know, people were piling up around the globe 17 times to get in. What were some of the numbers there? That was really, I mean, going back to where this conversation started about 50 best, when the restaurant first took that number one spot, it was truly transformational. You know, a restaurant that served at the time 45 people twice a day was immediately sold out three to five months in advance, had a wait list in the tens of thousands. At that time, Others would have said, right, what do we now do with that? Okay, we're going to open other restaurants. We're going to open Noma in New York, and we're going to open one in London, and we're going to open one in Tokyo, and we're going to scale it in the way that others have done and have done to great success. Again, it's not a judgment call on what anyone has done before. It's just not what Rene wanted to do. He's driven by something very different than that. He likes being in his restaurant. He's not driven by just traveling the world and shaking hands and kissing babies. He's driven by creativity and the experience of his guests. So they were the constraints. You know, I don't want to expand the restaurant. I don't want to scale it internationally. I don't want to do the more traditional licensing program, including things that I had done with my team to great success with brands like MasterChef, come up with something different. and. Boiling it down, there were two things that I think had underpinned a lot of Noma's success. One was obviously its creativity, two, its purpose, and we can come back to that. But the third was its people. You know, this is an extraordinarily human capital intensive industry, both in terms of Hmm. the people that work here day in and day out to create these extraordinary experiences, but also, you know, it is human capital dependent as it relates to our guests. I think you say it's as low a margin business as as television production, Ben. It's far lower than that, Paul. (laughs) It's not as low as publishing, I can promise you. Oh, Oh, you reckon you'd match that? I mean, talk about race to the bottom. I think that's for another conversation. (laughs) Yes. Show us your numbers. (laughs) So sorry, I interrupted because, you know, you're on a good flow there. 
I'll come back to the talent in a minute, but that's also something that I realized making the leap from media and entertainment to hospitality is it is so human capital dependent. And there are very few industries where, you know, one bad review, Paul, and a restaurant can go out of business. We've seen that back in Sydney. I mean, there were famous cases of restaurants suing publishers for bad reviews. One bad review can send a television show from primetime into off-peak or an album that was expected to make a top five debut into a top 50 debut. And so what that means is that you are constantly investing in your creativity, but also the experiences of the guest. I mean, I remember once saying to somebody, operating a restaurant is like live television five nights a week. And they corrected me and they said, no, it's live improv television. And it's true because, you know, each night, 75 guests step through the door and each of them comes with a different experience and different expectations. Maybe two of them have had an argument in the taxi ride on the way over. Maybe two of them are celebrating their honeymoon. Maybe two of them have saved their money for 12 months and this is a bucket list experience. And what that team does every night to deliver to the expectations of those people is world class. It's second to none. They are what defines Noma. So let me get you back to scaling beyond the kitchen, Ben. So what happened? Back to kind of one of those principles, it was talent. And it was something that Renee and, you know, his partners have invested in for, you know, it's the 20th anniversary of Noma in 2023. It's this extraordinary group of people that step through the doors. It is the United Nations. We have, you know, including myself from Australia, there are three or four others from Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide. We have people from pretty much every country around the world and they come to Noma to be a part of something extraordinary. And what that has allowed Renee and the team to do is develop talent, but to also spot extraordinary talent. And around 2016, 2017, the business decided that we would take the limited capital that a fine dining restaurant would have, a lot of sweat equity, and some of the halo from the brand, and we would invest in some of that talent. And we would help them realize what was their kind of vision for hospitality. And, you know, we did that initially with a restaurant called 108. And then we invested in a former chef of ours called Rocio Sanchez, an extraordinary Mexican-American chef who came to Noma and then left to open a taqueria in Copenhagen and has since grown that to four locations around the city. And we've done that three or four times. Each of those places, each of those talents has their own purpose and their own identity. And some of them have visions of creating, you know, in inverted commas, scalable restaurants with locations around Copenhagen and around the world and possibly going into consumer products and possibly going into film and television. And what's right for them, Paul, isn't necessarily right for Noma and vice versa, So, you know, not wanting to sound too commercial about it, but in effect, we created with them a portfolio where each of them is kind of nurtured to be the best that they can be and to realize whatever it is that they want to achieve. None of them are in the likeness of Noma. Each of them has their own place from fast casual through to, you know, more of that finer dining space. But All of them are distinct. All of them are built on the shoulders of extraordinary talent. And that was one of the key ways that we went about starting to expand beyond what were the four walls of Restaurant Noma. 
Then what happened, Ben? So that was sort of almost phase one. Yeah. Then something happened after that, and I'm assuming that it sort of you were brewing on things and it became organic. What was an organic process to next stage, and what did that look like? Yeah, I mean, some of it was also just applying my background in rights and rights management to perhaps build upon the work that the team had done previously. There were commercial relationships with occasional commercial relationships with brands like American Express. As you alluded to in the intro, we worked with Tourism Australia and Lend-Lease. For Noma Australia, we worked with the Mexican government and American Express when we took Noma to Mexico in 2017. And I just set about applying, you know, the fundamentals of kind of rights and sponsorship that, as I say, I had develop and learned from the masters of sports and media and started applying it here. And what we did there was not necessarily reinventing the wheel. It was just building a better race car. So, you know, we structured our deals somewhat more differently. We brought on board new partners and we found a better way to kind of package and develop our rights. And those things are what underpin many fine dining restaurants. It is those commercial partnerships because, as you know, you touched on before and you won't get the number from me, <laughs> the margins of fine dining are very low single digits. And so the everything else that wraps around it is really what, you know, sustains and allows it to continue growing. You know, that took us into, as I say, better rights partnerships with people like American Express or Audi better publishing agreements. You know, we renegotiated some of our deals because that is still a very lucrative category for food and publishing. And then we started kind of thinking, where else could we go? And that led us to some degree back to my old world of media. Right. And this is where it gets interesting. You've got a thread here of purpose as well. So that defined where you might go in media and what that looked like. So just take us there quickly. And by the way, we could be here for hours. So maybe we have a fast tour through what happened, you know, in the subsequent between what, 2016, 17, when you're doing the pop-ups globally. And then what happened after that? Where did you start to evolve to content context, really, wasn't it? Renee and I started talking about media. Look, as I said, we talked about it from the very first time we met back in 2012, 2013. But we really started talking about it again in 2018, 2019. And he'd been thinking about an idea of a story that he wanted to tell ever since that first time that I had met him. And we sat down in 2018, the end of 2018, and I think the conversation was now is the time to do it. And he was not interested in doing um, a series about himself. He was not interested in doing a series about the restaurant. In actual fact, he wasn't even motivated to be on screen. What the two of us acknowledged was that through the success of the restaurant, he had been given an extraordinary platform. And that was a platform to elevate the stories of really the stories of us. You know, this idea that food is the through line that connects communities and cultures around the world, that through food, you can explore really any issue, the environment, sustainability, diversity, social justice, commerce, culture, history, and that, you know, we would stand on the shoulders of giants being the TV formats and things like Ugly Delicious and Chef's Table and Parts Unknown to create something that we hoped would be the next iteration of food media. And that would be food media with purpose and impact at its core. 
food media that would reconnect audiences to the food system and through the food system to the planet. And I started talking about businesses like Participant Media, which was founded by Jeff Scholes, or Anonymous Content, which is now linked to the Emerson Collective. And this idea that storytelling with purpose could be just as entertaining as a primetime series or a blockbuster picture. And that looking forward, audiences, consumers were going to expect that of the brands and the media that they consume. You know, previously when you would walk in and you'd say purpose and impact, people would think, oh, well, this is going to be worthy and this will be an anchor. And actually now I see it as being this is the wind in the sails. And that, you know, there have been extraordinary examples of doing that. And so we set about creating this, this media venture, you know, that led to a partnership with Endeavor Content, with Chris Rice and the team. For those that maybe don't know Endeavor, it's a super huge leading Hollywood talent agency that's got celebrities and beyond. Yeah, Endeavor Content is part of the Endeavor Group. Endeavor Group is William Morris, it's IMG, it's UFC, but Endeavor Content is their content development, financing, production. Chris Rice and the team there understood what it was that we were doing from the very beginning. He wasn't through us trying to create the next food format. He wasn't through us trying to turn the restaurant or Renee into a celebrity chef. He bought into that vision and he bought into that purpose that we had. And we set about that relationship in 2020. And 12 weeks later, a pandemic hits. And yes, right. that threw a curveball both to the restaurant and it threw a curveball to our plans in media. But actually what it gave us was nine months to focus on what would become this first series that unfortunately we're about three weeks away from announcing. But as you touched on in the intro, it is... Who is it again? What streaming service again? I can't remember what you said. Yeah, I'm mouthing it to you now, Paul. Uh, (laughs) What does it look like? Give us a sense on the format. Can you talk a little bit about it or not? Imagine if you will. No, look, it is what I touched on before. It is this idea of looking at the world through the lens of food. We have an extraordinary writer attached. We have an extraordinary Hollywood studio director attached. Renee will be the voice of that series. And we hope it will usher in that next generation of food programming. And I think, you know, that was one of the challenges that Renee threw to me when I first joined at the beginning as well, which is whatever we do, let's not do what has been done before. Let's do things that push boundaries, whether that be what that team does in the kitchen or when we do pop-ups, you know, let's not send 10 people and take over an existing restaurant. Let's close our restaurant here. Let's move to the other side of the world and build a temporary location with a menu that reflects time and place that at the end of it, we're going to tear up and never create again. That same principle applied to our ambitions in media, which was let's look at food in a different way. Let's make it less about consumption. Let's make it less about the deification of chefs and restaurants. And let's go back to what it really is, which is about culture and community. So you got that first series up and running. You won't tell me for the record again, repeat who it's with and what it's about, but that's okay. I can cope. Other ideas, you know, apart from that, was there other things cooking that you cooked up, pardon the pun, over through that COVID period and beyond that is next? In success, yes. We have what Hollywood called the beginnings of a slate. It's all based in factual, factual and entertainment. Each of those, again, you know, Endeavor has helped us usher that through, but we have some partners around us on each of those, and we're starting to take those things out. 
But for now, it is very much about setting forth on this first project. As I say, it's only a couple of weeks away from being announced, but it's an extraordinary one where I'm really excited. I wish I could tell more. So in your plans, no products, no merchandise, no licensing, no corporate partnerships? Is that how pure you're going or is there some sort of give there? We have a very important partnership with American Express, one that preceded my arrival with the business, but it's one that we've just grown over time. To date, they are the only commercial partner that we work with. Obviously, we've worked with some to realize the pop-ups. They are unique projects in their own right, and they do depend upon private and public sector to support to be realized. But as it relates to the day-to-day, we've worked with American Express and grown that relationship many times and many fold over the period of time that I've been here and we've been working together. As I say, we have a, a very important publishing program, which is a, you know, a multi-book deal over many years, which is much more about, you know, the restaurant itself. And, you know, Renee actually did announce through the pandemic that he was starting to think more about other ways to sustain the business and announced a project with a lowercase p called Noma Projects, which was about taking, I guess, you know, the kind of creativity of the Noma kitchen and making it available to people around the world. And, you know, that is one of the things that I've discussed as a consequence of the pandemic is this idea of permission. Restaurants and hospitality, Paul, were the canaries in the coal mine. It is the industries, if you look at any country around the world, including Australia and Denmark, which, relatively speaking, have navigated the pandemic pretty damn well, the hospitality industries were the first hit or amongst the first hit and were amongst the hardest hit. And a consequence of that is, I think, that restaurants, chefs, restaurateurs have permission to do things differently again, that audiences are understanding that if they want their favorite restaurants, if they want their favorite bars, their favorite chefs to still be here in a year, three years, five years time, that there will need to be some sort of commercial foundation that is put underneath the industry. I mean, the parallels between the music industry when I was there, which was I'm dating myself, kind of the birth of Napster. So the end of the heyday and the beginning of the disruption of the record labels. You were at Warner Brothers then, weren't you? Sorry, you were at Warner Music, weren't you? I was, mate. I was there for for six years at the birth of digital. But, you know, back then, if an artist had a commercial relationship with a brand or merchandise, they were sellouts. That was the common phrase amongst artists, but to some degree also amongst the audience. But fast forward five or 10 years later and, you know, tours don't get financed and albums don't get made and video clips don't get made without corporate support. You know, we've seen it happen, the fringes of it happen in the US, but I think we're at the dawn of that age for the food industry, which is, you know, chefs and restaurants are starting to explore other ways to sustain their businesses, sustain their creativity. And to be honest with you, to be valued in the same way that, other creatives have been for the last 10 to 20 years. It is an industry that has sadly been built on not valuing itself. And I hope that that's one of the things that I've been able to do is instill a sense of worth and value into, you know, the rights and the intellectual property. Again, it's not a romantic way of saying it, but the rights and intellectual property that underpin this extraordinary place. Just out of interest, what happened to Noma through COVID? It was tough, mate. I mean, it's funny being an expat. I mean, I remember it. On the Thursday, 
Trump announced that flights between the Europe and the US were closing. 24 hours later, the Danish prime minister announces that borders are closing. And 24 Mm. hours later, we were shut down as an industry. It was very strange being on the other side of the world from home and realizing, well, not only that I couldn't get back in, but at that point, I actually couldn't get out. We were locked in place. What was the split? Uh, What was the ratio of your customers, of your diners that were local and international? Prior to that point, Paul, it was 80-20. It was 80% international. 80 international. Wow. And so we were closed for three months. We were allowed to reopen with heavy restrictions. And then Denmark enjoyed itself in the summer of 2020. And then we were all sent back to our bedrooms to think about what we were done. And we were all (laughs) shut down again for another six months. We were fortunate that we had as an industry, but really as an economy, the support of the Danish government. I mean, they took this approach of putting the economy in the deep freezer, as they started saying, because they felt it would be easier to defrost the economy than watching it completely shatter and having to rebuild it. And so industries such as ourselves that had been closed were able to draw upon quite extraordinary financial support. But we also had the support of some of our partners, partners like American Express, being able to take advantage of goodwill in a relationship that we had fostered for a very long period of time. They and our customers, our guests were there and supported us through it. But we're back open. The industry has a long road ahead of it, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. And we've fared better here than perhaps other, than many of our peers have around the world. So we don't take that for granted. So you're in the middle of a whole bunch of diversification really going on with Noma. And I'm busting to, I've been busting to ask this the whole conversation really, is that I had a very, very fast carrier pigeon come my way a few days back telling me that there's a possibility that you're actually returning to Australia. Now, give it to us. What's going on there? I am, mate. I am. I have decided to close a a seven-year chapter of my career, but a seven-year chapter of my life. And so early in the new year, the family will be picking up stumps and heading back to Oz. We'll be heading back to Sydney. And it's bittersweet. This has been one hell of a ride. And both as a family in terms of living here, but professionally as well, I've been a part of a team that has climbed Everest many times. From those pop-ups to the birthing of a media venture and everything in between, it's been a really extraordinary experience, but it's time. And I think, you know, the last 18 months gave us all pandemic resolutions, as a friend of mine referred to it. And mine was, you know, to possibly veer back towards the world that I'd come from, which was more brand, more media. I certainly don't want to lose side of everything that I've just, you know, been a part of for the last seven years. And, you know, Renee and I will, you know, continue, I'm sure, to collaborate on. Well, I was going to ask, is there still a connection there? You'll still continue to do something? No doubt in my mind that, you know, he and I will collaborate again or continue to collaborate again. I think our... Does he dislike intensively Australia because of you now? As I said to you before, there's two to three others here, you know, right. with far better hair, Paul. No, he, look, he's been nothing but he's been nothing but a support of it. Obviously disappointed, but I think also recognizes that you know together we've done some pretty extraordinary things. So, so do you have anything in the pipe? Is there something that you're not going to tell me that you're up to on your return to Australia? What's the plan, mate? I'm not going to tell you because I haven't worked that out myself. It's the first time I've 
pulled the ripcord in my career without something very clear and concrete in terms of a landing point. I've been very fortunate over the last two to three months to be able to bend the ear of friends and colleagues and peers from within the industry, both at home in Oz and around the world. And when I say the industry, that's media and brand world and agency world to really get a sense of what's going on and where there may be gaps and where there may be opportunities to create value and where there are people doing great things. I haven't decided if I'm going to start something. I haven't decided if I'm going to join somebody. There's still some time to run here and there are still some things that I want to do with the team before I close that chapter. But in the meantime, I'm just, you know, enjoying the conversations and really just getting that sense of what it is and with whom I want to do it next. Well, it's a great conversation, Ben, and really interesting. Just following the arc of your journey and Noma's journey is fascinating. We're out of time, unfortunately, but I think there's something in getting you back on and having another chat, but I'm sure there's numerous opportunities that they're going to come by your way and we'll talk about them next time. But thanks for joining, Ben Lieberman. It was a great conversation. Mate, lovely to see you again. Thanks for having me. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's more. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.